I'm Jeff Smith and welcome to the Secrets of Success. Throughout my life, I've been fascinated by one single question, and it's how do successful people become successful? What is it that makes that big difference in our lives? Over the last 40 years, I've interviewed rich people, famous people, and many millionaires to find out their secrets of success and to share them here with you. Of course, success is not always measured in money. And in these programs, I'm looking at many different success stories from people in all walks of life. I want to find out what makes them tick, how they overcame adversity to keep on going, and I want to extract those magical nuggets of wisdom so that you too can implement the secrets of success into your own life. In this episode, I'm talking with Catherine Llewellyn. Catherine's lifelong passion for human transformation began at the age of six years old. Encouraged by her wildly bohemian upbringing and a variety of catalytic encounters with radical thought leaders. This path delivered extraordinary experiences, challenges and learnings in her work and professional life. I have a feeling this is going to be a really fascinating show. She investigated the humanistic philosophical approach, energy healing, strategic creativity, and has developed her own self-mastery. She led an extraordinary life filled with wonder, colour, and unpredictable accomplishments. She's a free thinker, a non-conformist. I love that. Always curious, often impulsive, not always popular, and seldom bored. Realizing that her passion would be best applied in service to others who wish to follow the call of self-mastery, Catherine gravitated to large-scale corporate leadership and transformation. Her clients are heavy hitters whose transformation created an extraordinary ripple effect of benefits for both their organizations, for their people and for their company by aligning fiscal success with value-driven leadership and culture. Hugely important. So let's find out more and bringing this truly amazing woman herself. Welcome to the show, Catherine Llewellyn. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff, oh, so much. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. And you're looking amazingly serene and relaxed. How are you today? I'm very, I am actually quite relaxed. Good, I, good. I made a point of, of, of being here very early to make sure all the technology was all set up. Because the, the technology is the bit that makes me nervous. Okay. The conversations are always the bit that I absolutely adore. Well, all, all, the, te all the technology in my hands today. So you can <laughs> absolutely relax, unwind, and then tell us all of your secrets of success. I can't wow. wait to find out about your life, your accompli accomplishments. But before we do that, Catherine, I want to find more about you. So I've got three, let me say, easy questions to get us going. And they are, where were you born? What was life like for you as a child? 
And what were your dreams and aspirations as you were growing up? Wow. Okay. I was born in Putney in London. And um, my parents decided to uh, give birth to me on a friend's bed <laughs> in a flat in Putney. And, and this, they were in the sort of artistic bohemian community. So this was a normal thing. And I was taken back there years later and introduced to a young a girl about my age, not very different, who was born on the same bed. And the two of us bounced up and down on this bed in delight and bonded with one another immediately. So that's where I was born. <laughs> I've got to come back to this because, <laughs> because people are going to be listening and thinking, what on earth does artistic bohemian mean and ah right yeah so, so we'll do that first and then I'll, okay. i'll backtrack to something else you said so what does that mean so well the whole bohemian thing um was a mixture of um i suppose a, a lot of the original bohemians came from aristocracy so they were wealthy people and they had a lot of time on their hands and they decided to look into things philosophically Now, a lot of those people decided that their path was art. You know, they, they were going to turn their back on wealth and privilege and they were going to follow the path of art. And that's what happened with my mother. So that was her background. And she sort of ran away and became a, um, a, an artist in, in uh, Chelsea in the 1940s, early 50s. So in those days, that was really very kind of out there. Yeah. Um, what, kind of, what kind of artist was she? What did she enjoy doing? She was a painter, oil painter. And what kind of paintings did she create? They were, um, a lot of people would call them lugubrious. So like really dark colours, often colours unique to her that she'd, she managed to mix these colours that were, when I was a child, I thought they were the most depressing colours I'd ever seen. Um, now I look at it and see subtlety and nuance and passion and, emotional vulnerability but as a child and there were these a lot of them were religious images okay you know okay. as i grew up on the wall of the living room in our house there was a massive oil painting of jesus being taken down from the cross you know broken and bleeding and i mean and and we would look at that and go just one question why why is it on the wall I'm five, right? <laughs> you know, what's going on? So that was a whole thing. And, and the, the Bohemians really lived in a very alternative way. So uh, they would be always following their art and following their bliss. And they were into things like freestyle dance, you know, Isadora Duncan, those people, Liz Frank, all those kind of arty people were extremely Bohemian, free thinkers, and very much outside of the, the norm. Fascinating. Fascinating. So she decided to have you on someone else's bed. I, yes. do, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that before. Someone else's <laughs> I bed. Think, I think they were staying in this woman's home or something. That's another thing with Bohemians. They're constantly sort of staying in each other's houses and showing up and therefore we're going to have a party and... You know, there was a very um, a kind of um, natural, um, free thinking, free expression atmosphere around it. 
And that was kind of what I was born into. Okay. So for me, that was, that was sort of normal. Yeah. So what was life like for you as a child? What was school like? Did you go to school? Were you home? I did go to school. Yes. I hated school. I thought it was a complete waste of time. And partly because at home we had this whole culture of free thinking and you can be who you want to be and you can have your own points of view. And then we went to school. I went to a private school, what a lot of people would call a good school. Well, in my opinion, it was a bad school. And at that time in the early 60s at a girls' school, the key priority that they said we should really invest in above all is to find a good husband. That's what success was supposed to be. Find a good husband. So it was so the question was, well, so why are we studying all this stuff then? Oh, well, that's so that you can make an interesting conversation while you're trying to ensnare the good husband. Isn't that fascinating? It's tragic, really, Jeff, frankly. It is. So to be honest, these two cultures in my life were very much at odds with each other, which created quite a lot of conflict for me. I can imagine, but, yeah. But but over time, actually, that's been transformative for me because that's enabled me to understand that inner conflict, I think, that we all have because we all have that desire for truth and freedom and self-expression and we all have the need to conform sufficiently that we can participate in the world and in society. So we need to work with both of those within us. And I really got a crash course in doing that as a child. It was very difficult. And then, of course, I went into puberty. And then it was even more of a nightmare because then there was the whole question of who am I? What's going on with me? How do I be popular? Who do I want to be popular? You know, what are these feelings? And all of that on top of all of that sort of social Uh, to and fro of those two kind of pressures or callings that I experienced. And I was a very sensitive child in the sense that I was very conscious of what I was experiencing and very, very curious about it. So all of this was in high relief for me, very, very intense. Wow. So whilst you had all these internal, let me say, battles going on, and I I really can sympathise there, what were your dreams and aspirations, apart from snaring a husband? <laughs> which, which actually was not my dream and aspiration. Let me just emphasise. You, you know, um, Catherine, I, I, I kind of knew that already, which is why. You kind of that. <laughs> um, also, my sort of personality, I, I can't snare people because they take one look at me and they know I'm going to be trouble if, <laughs> if it's not a good fit. You know what I mean? I'm not sort of, um, I'm not an easy port of call, but um, yes. Uh, so what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> what were your dreams and oh, aspirations? Yes. I, my first memory of this, which was also at a very young age, because there used to be sort of um, cocktail parties in the house. This, in the 60s, you probably remember cheese and wine, things like that. Yes, and the fondue sets. And Oh, God, kill <laughs> <laughs> me now. Um, and I'd be there. For some reason, the children would be there helping serve drinks and things. And I would be looking up at these adults, looking up, I remember, at a sort of angle of 70 degrees and thinking, why are these people spending so much time saying stuff that they don't believe? Why are they talking nonsense to each other the whole time? And why are they pretending they believe each other? And why do they pretend, are they pretending any of this means anything? 
I found this completely bizarre. And so the question that emerged to me then was, well, wh what, is, what is it that has people actually be really happy and, and truthful and true to themselves? What is that? Because this culture that's going on that I'm witnessing is not it. That can't be it. That just feels so unreal. And so I remember when I was quite young noticing that and thinking, this is unreal. This is not okay. This is not what I want. I want to be part of things being real and, and people being happy and being connected with what's true for them. And you had that awareness at age six? Yeah, maybe six or seven, maybe. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? You know, I'll, I'll share something with you now. The exact same thing happened to me and I was six. Isn't this fascinating? Which That's extraordinary. It is. And I'll share with you what happened. So um, my parents, Church of England. So I was born into and... Um, given the religion of Church of England. And we lived in a council house that was semi-detached and the family next door were not Church of England, they were Catholic. Now, I don't know what else happened. I'm six years old, five years old, we just moved into this house and there was a boy and girl who lived next door, one year younger than me. So what did I want to do? I wanted to go play football with the boy next door. I was not mm. allowed. And what? Oh. What? Uh, maybe there was something else other than what I thought was going on, which was this non-alignment of religion. But I was not allowed to play with the boy next door. And, and I'm thinking, the wall between us is the width of two bricks. Mm. So if I was born you know, uh, 20 inches away, then my beliefs would be different. How, how can that be? Mm, mm. So what we used to do was meet secretly and go play football, pretend it never happened, and then came back. Yeah. And, and, and I had the same thoughts as you, is that why is this going on? Why? Are they, why? I, I really don't get it. Anyway, I'm going to end my bit there. Because this is about, we've done my story already. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm on your show called Truth and Transcendence. So that which has was a one beautiful episode, which aired last week. Really wonderful episode. I just want to pick up on one thing you mentioned there about sure. the thing you met in secret and then played football and then came back and pretended it never happened. And that's something I then started to observe, which is people kind of going underground and finding the thing that they need. And if they didn't feel they had the space to express that and show that in the daylight of their life, they would go and do it in darkness, under the cover of darkness, essentially, and find a way to do it. And I think one way that that plays out nowadays is some people do that with a coach. They'll, they'll go and work privately with a coach and explore the stuff that really matters to them that they don't necessarily feel they're able to do in their normal life. But they do it in order that they can then come back and bring it into their normal life. You know, like you're sitting here now doing this podcast with me. You are now able in your normal life to follow your truth and do what you want to do and 
presumably play football if you want to with whoever you want, <laughs> right? But you, you know, at the beginning, you had to go off and do it secretly. Yeah, and I, yeah. And I think that's a, that's a really important thing. And some people would say there was a whole movement, um, a sort of cult of authenticity that occurred in the 80s and 90s where everyone's saying, no, no, you've got to be authentic at all times with all people. And if you're not, then you're lying and you're letting yourself down and da, 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 da. And I would temper that and say, sometimes we need to go and work on something and express something in private where we feel safe and then bring it back when we've strengthened that thing in us that needs to be strengthened so that we can come back and then do it in the light of day. So thank you for that. That triggered that thing there that I felt was very important to say. It is indeed. And I want to pull back on it later, if I may, Catherine. So we got to your puberty. And then... <laughs> and then... <God. laughs> so I, I'll let you pick it up from there. <laughs> but everything went to hell. No, um, I think something that... Um, as, probably as a result of my uh, background at home, I was never interested in um, game playing, as in gender game playing between boys and girls. I was never interested in it, and I was rubbish at it. I remember a couple of times when I was when I was coming through puberty, and I wanted to be popular, and there was a boy I liked, you know, all that sort of thing. I noticed that the other girls did very well with sort of simpering and flirting and. Sort of, and the boys really liked it. I tried to do it, and people thought I was having a stroke. <laughs> it was so, it was so completely not me. You know, I just couldn't do it. You know, I could only do the fairly sort of straightforward, here I am type thing, or the very shy, I'm terrified thing. You know, I could do those two things, but the sort of sophisticated, simpery thing, I never managed to master. So. You know, the, the upshot of that was I tended to have uh, friendships and then later on boyfriends that were quite um, genuine, you know, that, that were quite genuine. And um, I didn't have a, a lot of sort of um, so-called popularity, you know, the kind of glitzy, uh, glossy surface popularity type thing. Yeah, the prom queen. Yeah, no, no that was never the thing. Yeah, indeed. Okay, so you got through that. <laughs> yes. Um, you completed your education. Then what? So I, I came out of school and thought, um, well, that was a complete waste of time. So I just sort of bummed around. I left home at 17 because I was fiercely independent and my father and I were clashing. Um, he was very protective and um, I was willful. So that was what was going to happen. So I left home. And, um, and in fact, in true bohemian style, the one day he, 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 he packed all his stuff in the dorm. We had a Bedford dormobile. And he said to the family, which was me and my three brothers and sisters, my mother passed some years before. And he said, right, I'm going off for a bit. When I get back, either I'm moving out or Catherine's moving out. And the other three looked at me. I was the eldest. They were clear who was bloody moving out. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I thought, right, that's it. And he disappeared for a week. And then he came back and then I moved out. Okay. So we had a very fiery um, relationship. Anyway, so I moved out and I started living uh, in Henley-on-Thames and basically socialising and partying and having an awful lot of fun. Um, and then one day my father showed up and said, look, you haven't applied to university. You haven't done anything. You need to go somewhere. So, oh, all right then. So 
I chose um, a social studies degree because I thought that might help me to learn about human beings um, at what is now Oxford Brooks. Went there, discovered it was nothing to do with learning about human beings. It was about statistics and um, uh, models and uh, it was nothing to do with understanding the human soul and the human spirit. So I bummed out of that after a year and parted for another few years in Oxford. And in the end, somebody said, uh, look, Catherine, do you ever want to actually get a job? I said, I suppose I'm better. And they said, well, what, what were you good at at school? And I said, well, maths. He said, okay, well, you better go into computers then. I went, all right then. So I went into computers. I, I, I did enormously well. I did one of these aptitude tests. And I beat all the other people who were all men. They were all three years older than me and they all had degrees. And they hated me because I just had this very sharp mind. So I went into programming and analysis for a few years and then and discovered I wasn't very good at that because I had no, I didn't care about detail, which is a bad thing in programming and analysis. So I, uh, one day I, was, I bumped into a, a friend and she said, um, uh, I've done this incredible weekend. I said, what do you mean? And I, and I said, also, by, by the way, why are, you, why are you glowing? You know, why is your energy really good? Why are you suddenly taking on all sorts of challenges that normally no one would ever do? Why aren't we just hanging out? And she said, well, I've done one of these enlightenment weekends. And you've probably heard about these. In the 70s, there were a lot of them, very sort of raw, intense weekends where you'd go in at 9 a.m. and the doors would be locked. And you'd be let out once for a pee during the day and opened again at 2 a.m., really intense, um, looking at yourself, examining your thoughts and feelings and everything else. And so I went and did this weekend thing, and that really was a transformational moment for me. That's when I discovered that I was um, completely self-obsessed, not taking responsibility for myself or my life, um, uh, holding other people responsible for my happiness, uh, expecting someone else to tell me what success was supposed to mean to me. You know, all of those kind of, I was in my early 20s. It was a massive kind of growing up shock for me. And it also brought home to me this whole relationship with uh, what I might call spirituality, as in the the notion of oneness, the notion of being connected with everybody and everything, the, the, the notion of... Um, the mere fact of existence having its own purpose to it before one has even thought about a specific chosen purpose or success. So these are really quite high flown philosophical notions. And we did a lot of experiential work around connecting with that in the heart and in the body and in the feeling, not just in the head. And that was just a three day experience, but it was really quite extraordinary for me. And that set me off on a whole new path where I started actually working with some of the people I met through that experience. And we said, right, we want to work together. I, I let go of the whole computer thing to the relief of all my colleagues, because I was just a nightmare. Uh, you know, we thought, let's work together and try and work in a way that is based on some of these values we, we've explored on this enlightenment seminar. Can we do that? We thought, seems like a good idea, but we've got to actually come up with something to earn money at. 
And one of us was uh, knew all about telephone marketing. And she said, well, why don't we do telephone marketing? And we said, well, what, what's that? <laughs> you're talking to people on the phone. You're really listening to them. You're offering them an appointment with a salesperson or something, but you're, you're doing it in a way where they feel better after the call than they did before because you're really relating with them authentically and making them feel special. And, and we went, yeah, sounds cool. Let's do that. So we did that. Cool. So when you went on this weekend, yeah. how old were you then? Um, 23. Okay. So, so at 23, mm. you realized that the answer is you. you. You can't get other people to deliver happiness for you. You can't get other people to decide what is right for you. Yeah. So you came out of that seminar with complete transformation yeah what happened because you've said so many things there that i want to come back to and you can say oh yeah i went on three days um, and my life transformed and now now i went like this but what actually happened what happened within you did you experience anything during the three days Yes, or, or shortly afterwards. It, what happened that caused you to change? I experienced so much in those three days. And I, I think we've all had that experience where we come out of something and think, was that just an hour, a day, a week, a month? You know, because it was so rich. I think something, uh, one thing that happened for me when, when I showed up, before we were allowed in the room, we each had to go and sit down in front of somebody who asked us some key questions. And I may not remember these questions exactly, but I'll remember the best I can. The first one was, are you willing to be willing? And I went, yeah. No, no. Are you willing to be willing? And this question went into my body. And I thought, they're not just asking, am I going to be a good girl or be sensible or show up or pretend? What they really mean, am I willing to be really willing? And then it went on to, are you willing to experience whatever you experience in this room and be responsible for your experience? Are you willing to have whatever this gives you? You know, these questions were about how I went into the experience. What, what, how did I go into the experience? Did I go in in a state of responsibility and receptiveness and absolute full choice? And I wasn't allowed in until I answered those questions and I meant it. And I could feel myself on the inside starting to kind of quiver and shake and stuff already because no one had ever confronted me in that way before, ever. It was not polite. You don't do that in normal polite society. No one had ever looked me in the eye and said, as if to say, you're not going in unless you get through this. And I was, you know, I'd come from a partially upper class background. Did they know, did they not know who I was? I was probably smarter than everyone in the room or so I thought. Who do you think you are? You know, but they didn't care. They had, they did not care about all of that. It's, are you willing to be willing? Are you willing to have the experience? Are you willing to have the result? 
Are you willing to own the result? Now that set the tone. That was that was five minutes on the first evening. And we, 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 we went through a lot of experiential exercises where you're doing something and you don't necessarily know why you're doing it, but you're feeling a lot whilst you're doing it. So I went through experiences. I probably went through every experience that you could name over that weekend from grief, fear, joy, uh, hilarity, ecstasy, peace, boredom, exhaustion, high energy, low energy, delight at being with other people, hating everybody else in the room, feeling privileged to be there, wondering what the hell I was doing there. Every single thing you could imagine I experienced during that weekend. And because of the way it was done, I came to a place of owning all of those experiences as I went along. Not necessarily as I went along, but shortly after each experience as I went along. And I think one of the most significant things that struck me in that weekend was we did an exercise which was called mind and being. And I'll have to explain what we meant by those terms. So mind meant uh, this person is stuck in their head, rationalization, uh, being clever, trying to understand everything but not experiencing anything. And being is about this person is 100% present, being, feeling, authentic and real. And we each had to go up to the front and communicate something. And then the group would say whether or not that was mind or being. So I went up to the front and I did a brilliant pretense at being. Really, really good. I was really pleased with myself. I thought this is bloody excellent. And all these other people really need this. And I'm so pleased to be here to witness them getting what they need. Okay. Really conceited, arrogant nonsense. Right. And I finished speaking and the group went mind. And I was absolutely livid. And that was another example of me being confronted. You know, that was my ego being confronted as in Catherine, we're not impressed. We're not impressed with your cleverness. We're not impressed with the gloss, the image, the pretense. We want you, the actual you, you know, and I've never been confronted in that way before. That's wonderful. It was a shock. Actually, that is the point I wanted to find out because there's a couple of things that comes out there because mm. I think the first thing is responsibility that came out there. And from what you've said, and I don't know you, yes, we've done a show together, but I don't know you, we've never met, but I'm thinking at this point, you'd not yet learned to take responsibility. That's a huge leap, huh? Mm. And, and when I found out with all successful people, they take responsibility. And you're just finding out at this point. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, I can have you, I can have you all in the palm of my hand. Uh, and, of course, you didn't. And mm -hmm. you can spot it a mile off, a mile. Now, what else yes. came from that? I think we've got enough from your background now to understand. Your podcast show is called Truth and Transcendence. So this has been a magical journey for you, a massive journey to 
drop the shackles of your background and the pretense that that created for you. I know I'm being quite harsh here, but <laughs> yeah, but you needed to drop that and find your own truth. Yeah, that's right. So I'd like you to explain now. You've called your podcast show Truth and Transcendence. So what does truth and transcendence mean to you? But if it's possible, Catherine, can we put it into the context of success? Because people want to know how to be more successful. Success means different things to different people, right? But in order to get to what we want, we have to be who we are. We can't yeah. consistently be who we are not. So your truth and transcendence, what does that mean then in the context of success for those people listening? Yeah, so um, something I've noticed in my life as I've gone through life is that the next step of success is always predicated on me connecting with what is true now. So anytime I've tried to go after something or accomplish something without fully opening to my, a recognition and a full live experiencing of what's true right now in the moment has been at best very hard work and at worst a complete failure. And the reason for that, I believe, is because what is true now is a combination of my state, my inner resources, my state of readiness, the external world that's around me, what's true about the external world right now and the external resources that I have, and what's true about what I want and why I truly want it. Now, if I, if I ignore any of those things, then I'm basically turning my back on a prime source of data for making choices about moving forward. You, you're an expert in key performance indicators. You know, in a way, truth for me is my version of key performance indicators, as in what's going on now? What's the truth about what's going on right now? Because if I ignore that, then A, the thing I'm choosing to go after, it may well be completely mistargeted because I might be choosing something to go after that I think is a good idea, but isn't really a good idea if I bear in mind how I really am now, what's really true in my life now, and also what's really true in the world now. So you mentioned the podcast, Truth and Transcendence. That podcast was born out of my observation of what was happening in the world at that point, which is I considered there was an awful lot of um, distress and trauma going on and that we needed really, really good leadership to help us, to lead us through that and out of that. And I felt that we needed the sort of leadership that was based on truth, that was based on leaders who were connecting with their own truth, who could then transcend the difficulties, because every leader is facing unprecedented difficulties right now, absolutely extraordinary. A lot of people have just given up, <laughs> understandably. But we needed leaders who are actually in that transcended space in order to give us the leadership that we wanted. So I wanted to offer something that would help them to do that. But that also played into where I was at that point in time. I was frustrated, annoyed, um, disappointed, fed up myself. 
So I wanted something that would allow me to to be contributing and be serving and be uh, exercising my gift, if you like, because for me, that's part of my path of, of, of growth and contribution and, my, and, and life satisfaction. So that podcast came out of my uh, very deep examination of where I was and my very deep examination of where I felt the world was. And that podcast was, was born from that. And what's interesting about that is I, I'm constantly getting messages from people saying, join our podcasting group, join our this, join our that, listen to our seminar. Here's multiple seminars about how to keep the concept of your podcast fresh, how not to get bored. And I thought, chance would be a fine thing for me to get bored with mine. There's no end to it because it's so grounded in a very deep examination of what was true for me at that time. And therefore, I see no end to the range of possibility for it. So if I come back to myself as an individual, which I think was more what you were asking, but it kind of, that came in. For myself, uh, I feel there's no, there's no limit to what I could potentially experience in my life. And there's no limit to what I could potentially express and contribute and receive. Because I feel that I am um, not limited by the limitations of my own mind and my own capabilities and my own identity and my own body, my own gender, my own culture, all of those things. Because when I'm looking at what truth is, I'm looking way outside of that as well as inside of that. So what that means is that my experience of life is, is a limitless thing and my relationship with life is a limitless thing. So therefore, transcendence is a natural consequence of that. And then when I take that into my work with my clients, I assume that that, that, that is at the very least a possibility for every single one of my clients to have that same experience or the equivalent for them, which means that they are infinite also. And then through the connection between us, there's then another thing which happens, which is the relationship, which is also infinite. So that's perhaps a very um, long way of answering your, your question. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> so so let, let me see if I can pull some of that back in then. Yeah. Someone's listening now. How do they find their truth? So the first thing I would say to someone who's listening and who has that question is to ask yourself, why are you asking that question? Why do you want to find your truth? What's going on that has, that has caused that question to rise for you? And in some cases, that question arises because someone's unhappy and they're saying, what's the truth? <laughs> what is the truth? Okay. For some people, that question's arising because they are on an uplift, you know, like the wave when it's coming in and the wave goes, you know, towers above everything else. They're on an uplift and they're feeling, oh my God, life is full of possibility. Things are extraordinary. Look at all these remarkable richnesses of experience. What is the real truth? What is the real truth? So my first question to somebody would be, 
See if you can identify where you're seeking for truth is coming from. Is it coming from a place of pain and distress? Is it coming from a place of wonder and ambition and joy? Where your question's coming from is your first place to look to find your truth. So in any given moment, the question you're asking or the thing you're seeking is the first trigger for you to find your truth. So you delve down inside that and you ask more questions about it. So let's say it's coming from a place of pain. You, you dive into the pain. You do whatever you need to do to do that, whether that's going and lying on the bed, curled up in a ball, moaning to yourself, whether it's listening to music, whether it's going for a walk, whether it's dancing, whether it's talking to your therapist or your coach, whatever it is, you dive into it because that pain is there because it wants to tell you something. It's not there because uh, you are designed to just suffer for no reason. At least that's not what I believe. I believe it's there for a reason. So you dive into it and you seek the roots of that. You seek the meanings of that. You seek the implications of that. You seek your judgments about it. How are you judging your pain? Have you decided it's a bad thing? Have you decided it's a growth pain? Have you decided it's a powerful transformation? Where did that judgment come from? So you literally go in and in and in and in and in and in and asking those questions. And you come to a place where something in you goes, wow, that feels true. And something I believe everybody has is what one of my mentors used to call the yes moment. It's that moment of, oh my God, I found that piece of truth for me. And trust that. That's the most important thing. Trust that discrimination that you have between I found my piece of truth or I haven't found my piece of truth. Because that is the, that's the true answer to it, the fact that you know the difference between the two. And if you've not reached it, you keep looking. And the same applies if your question is coming from a place of wonder and joy. What, what's that about? Where's that from? What is it that's really fascinating you? And keep going and watch out for the people around you who are trying to tell you what your truth is or what they think your truth should be or that you should be doing something about what they think your truth should be. Love and blessings and gratitude to those people, and they do not know your truth. Fascinating. I have so many questions here. Now, l- let me try to make that... Uh, I want to say simpler, but that's not the right word. But, okay, l- let, let me put a slightly different context on it, because I want to rewind now. Earlier, you said... Find out who you are or where you are and, and understand what you want because the two might not match. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm not going to expand anymore. I'm just going to say, what does that mean? And is that related to what we were just saying about finding your truth? Yes, it is. And what it means is that sometimes we have... Um, some people call it a cognitive dissonance. It's where we've got two things going on within us and they don't seem to match or they don't seem congruent. In my experience, what that usually means is we haven't gone deep enough because when we go deep enough, they do meet. And my analogy for this is if you take 25 people and you stand them around the perimeter of the globe, 
and you ask each of them to start drilling down, straight down, eventually they'll meet in the middle at the center of the earth. That's what it's like when we're examining ourselves. So on the surface, there's our goals, our self-assessment, our relationships, where we live, the circumstances of our lives, all of these things which may, may or may not look like they join up. But if you drill down into the center of a person, they join up in the middle somewhere. And that's where you find out that some, when you go right into the middle, that's when you find out, ah, oh, that one on the surface, I might want to tweak it a bit so it fits a bit better with what I found out on the inside of me. So sometimes somebody might feel like in their life that they're, that they're following a path that's pretty good, but doesn't 100% really, really, really hit the spot for them. If that's the case, it's probably not what they really, really want. And in order to find out what they really, really want, they probably need to find out more about who they are in order to discover who that person, what that person really, really wants. Because if they did know who they really were, then of course they would know what they really, really want. But most of us, we're not taught as we grow up, we're not taught to really know who we really, really are. We're taught to fit in and to look good. Generally speaking, that's a massive generalization. Some of us have been really fortunate and have had some influences in our lives that really helped us to really know who we are. But the question of who we are also, we keep changing as well. So we have to keep looking again. Okay. Now that brings me on very nicely to a point that I love to question. So I'm going to rewind back on something you said again. And you said about applying your gift or your purpose. Um, mm. Catherine, one of the questions I'm asking very, very frequently is, how do I find my purpose? Now, everything you've said now, I believe, leads to this point. So our truth, our transcendence, finding out who we are, and all this cognitive dissonance and all of everything you've just said comes to purpose. So let me ask you a couple of questions based on this. First one, do you think we each have a purpose? Now, I know that's really deep. And the other one is that I'm asked very, very frequently is, Jeff, how do I find my purpose? So I'm going to push those questions back to you, Catherine. Ah, oh, this is such a great one. <laughs> <laughs> Philosophers across the ages have discussed this one. Some people would say, we don't need a purpose. We just need to be alive. And some people would say we really do need a purpose. So my feeling on it is it's up to each person. And I've had times in my life where it's been important for me to just float. And that's been, I suppose you could say my purpose at the time in a, in a seemingly purposeless way. And other times it's been very important for me to have a very clear purpose. And I would say there's value in both. And I would also say that uh, in the times when I've had a very clear purpose, it's been very important for me to take time out and be purposeless for periods of time and then come back refreshed. Because otherwise I can get too overly obsessed with the purpose and lose touch with the, the truth of the experience of just being alive in the moment. Okay. Because that's the danger. I, 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 just, I just want to hold you there, if I may. Mm. 
That's great. I get that. And I'm going to come on to that. That's if you found your purpose, you're working on your purpose, and then you get consumed and exhausted by it and you need a rest. We'll come on to that. Mm. First, let's deal with the person who's not yet found their purpose. How do, how do they begin that process? Well, it's a very good question. And this is something I've spent a lot of time on in myself and with other people. So it's, it's, it's actually different for different people of, of the best way to do it. For most people, I would suggest that the place to start is by examining life as it is now and examining what is it in my life now that I love and that I don't love. What is it that seems to nourish me and interest me? And what is it that seems to be boring and unhelpful and that I don't like? And to, to examine all of that and then say, if I could keep some of this and drop some of this, which would it be? Which is the stuff I want to keep? Which is the stuff I want to drop? And then say, why? Why is that the piece I want to keep? Now, at this point, sometimes people discover that the bit they want to keep is the bit where they're on the sofa eating chocolate, cuddling with their <laughs> beloved and watching whatever their thing is. Now, if that's the case, maybe their purpose is just to have an easy, comfortable life. But usually if someone says that to begin with, usually they say, eh, you know what, that'd be great for a weekend. So the next question is, would that be, is that enough forever? And the answer is usually no. And then the question is, well, why not? What would be missing? And imagination. People really need to exercise their imagination and say, what would really excite me? And if someone can't come up with that, then I suggest look at the people around you who you think are leading an exciting, purpose-driven, wonderful life. What are they doing and how does that inspire you? Why does it inspire you? What does it inspire about you? Now, at this point, people often come up with a kind of a self-censoring thing where they start to decide that certain things should inspire them and certain things shouldn't. Now, again, speaking to you, Mr. KPI, you know, I think you had people saying to you, KPIs are fundamentally boring. And you're going, well, not to me, right? Not to me. Okay. And this is the thing that, that when people get to that thing of, no, that's fascinating for me, that is not fascinating to me. It, and the thing is, there's no short path to it, Jeff, honestly. It's a lot of work getting to this because there's a lot of unraveling as well. There's the unraveling of, what are all the things I'm doing that I'm doing because I think they're a good thing to do or because other people want me to do them? I've seen so many situations where uh, a male client, for example, has said, I'm following this purpose. No, no, this is what I really want to do. And also I need to do this for my family. I said, okay, go home and have a chat with your family about this. And he's come back and said, I, I don't believe it. They told me they were supporting me to do that because they thought they had to support me to do that because I wanted to do it. They didn't want me to do it. And there was this massive illusion going on of people being stuck in what wasn't their real purpose because they're following what they think other people want them to do. So the whole, I mean, those are just a few things, Jeff. I mean, when I do this with clients, we spend a whole month on this, so I can't sum that up. But it, those are the sorts of things to look at. 
Yeah. It took me back, Catherine, to the the podcast where you interviewed me. Mm. And I hadn't realised it until we were speaking just. Uh, you, you remember the time when um, the, the guy asked me, hey, Jeff, what would you do if you won a million dollars? Yeah. And I said, I'm going to think about it and come back to you tomorrow. And that was the beginning of the revolution of my purpose. Mm. Because mm. I, I said, okay, the easy one is to buy the nice car, the nice house and all the rest of the stuff. But put that aside and then I came forward and he said, well, you don't need a million dollars to do this. And it was, aha. Uh -huh. So it's very fascinating what you, what you just said. So here's one. Do you think everyone has a purpose? I don't know, honestly. Mm, okay, let's leave that one there then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's cool. That's cool. Um, I, I, tell, I, will, I will say something yeah, else, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think I have the authority to say that on other people's behalf, I think, is more truthful. Yes, I, un I understand that. Yeah. So I'll come on to the point you made earlier about when you've been working on your purpose, at some point perhaps you need to have a rest and, and float a little. Now, I'll share something that, that happened to me in that... I believed, true or not, my purpose was to write the KPI book. Yeah. I was filled with passion. I wrote the book. It took its toll on my mind, my body, my health, everything. I then completed the book. But what happened afterwards was really, really surprising. It it felt like I'd been hit like a truck. I felt empty. And the reason I felt empty was because I felt like I no longer had a purpose. So I've got the benefit of seeing you on video here and you're smiling and nodding. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to pass that one over to you rather than me talk anymore and say, and say what happened to me. Yeah, this so. is an absolute classic, absolute classic. So that experience you described, I've had many times. And I would say that's an experience where someone has genuinely fulfilled their purpose or the purpose that they've chosen and followed. And I'm saying that's that's a um, topical purpose as opposed to a life purpose. So behind that, there's a life purpose. And I think the thing you mentioned about the million, what would I do if I had a million dollars? And you said, I'll misquote you, you want to help other people to, to learn and grow, it's something along those lines. Now, that's a life purpose. And I've got an, a similar life purpose to that. But that was a specific purpose which you fulfilled. And then there's a space, there's an ending, and there's a space. And something we in the West are very bad at is endings and space. And that's unfortunate because if you don't experience that ending, experience that space, you don't then have these space to find and create your next purpose. So if you avoid that experience you just described, and a lot of us spend a lot of time avoiding that experience, either by refusing to complete things, um, dumbing ourselves down, 
doing all kinds of procrastinating, doing all kinds of things, except having that falling off a cliff experience that you, you described of, oh, God, there's, I'm empty, there's nothing left. And so I would say that experience is to be absolutely celebrated. Anyone who's listening to this, if you're having that experience, that is a very advanced experience. Because that means, A, you've chosen a really powerful purpose. B, you fulfilled it, which is extraordinary. And C, you're now in a space to choose the next one. Suck it up and experience it. You know, know that that's a success. That emptiness feeling is a success. Great. I wish I'd known that at the time. <laughs> I, I, I do know. I do know that now. You know that now. I, exactly. I do. And I do agree with what you said. But I, um, I then wrote another book and then had the same experience again because oh, I, I won't go into it now, but long story. But you are quite right. Celebrate what we do. But what's fascinating about what you just said is that not only do we have multiple purposes, which is what you're saying, we don't just have one person, there's a lifelong purpose which is then nested with smaller task-based purposes yeah or mission-based or yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're more temporary yeah okay what about the person then who can't find any and they're in search of and say i don't have a lifetime purpose i don't have a mission i don't have a task Catherine, I'm absolutely lost. So there will be some people like that, I'm sure. And I know that's how you help people. So I normally ask at the end of the show, how do people reach out to you? But because this has come to this point and someone might be going, I need some help here. So if someone needs some further guidance on finding their purpose, how do they reach out to you to ask you more? Thank you. There's a number of ways they can do that. If they want to be completely anonymous, they can listen to my podcast, Truth and Transcendence. And there are several episodes in there that will help directly with that. And I've been told by listeners that if you listen to the episode, two or three, these episodes two or three times, make notes, meditate on it, discuss it with your friends, you can actually get a, quite a good lesson out of those episodes. You can go to the website, which is yesyounow.today, because it's about you and it's now and it's today, and you're saying yes to yourself. And on there, there's some very interesting little set of videos about how and why to elevate your life. And the first of those videos is about choosing why you're doing it. What, what's your purpose? And we go into that in some depth. Also on the website, you will see a series of programs. And the first program is called Power of Choice. And this is about you finding your purpose and literally the power that you have within you of making your own choices and how those things link together. Great. Excellent. Now, have you written a book? This is a question I want to ask you. Have you written a book? I've actually written five. Five? <laughs> 
Um, Catherine, we need to talk because I could not find any information about you writing a book. I was expecting you to say, no, Jeff, I haven't. And I was going to say, shame on you. So, so. No, I'm hopeless. I'm absolutely hopeless, Jeff. And in fact, three of them are published on Amazon and the other two I just literally haven't published yet. Um, so I'm just hopeless. Uh, but yes, I've written five books. And interestingly, you know the thing we were saying about sometimes when you have a purpose, you have to take a break. Yeah. Um, w- one of the books that really played out in quite an interesting way that I didn't fully understand at the time. So um, this book is, is about uh, what it's like being a non-exec chairman. And if anyone listening doesn't know what that is, a non-exec chairman is someone who's chair of the board in an organization or a charity or something, but, and they're non-executive in the sense that they're, not, they're usually not full-time employed and they're not um, responsible for profit contribution and things like that. So it's a very, it's a very interesting, powerful, unique position and a number of my clients became non-exec chairmen, and I've worked with a number of non-exec chairmen, and I thought, this is fascinating. Everybody thinks that these people are a sort of a caricature of a sort of a weird um, bloke who has lots of power and no one really understands them, and they're not even necessarily totally human anymore because they're so senior. And I thought, no, they're very, very human, these people. So what's the experience like? Uh, So I interviewed uh, seven of these people, made all the notes. And I thought, this is fantastic. You know, I'll turn this into a book. Sat down, couldn't write it. And then I put the notes away. And then a few things happened in my life. And I kept coming back and saying, no, I really need to write this book. And my procrastination was so strong that there came a point where I literally could not find the file. I literally managed to lose the file in amongst my belongings, could not find it. And eventually there came a point, literally four years after doing the interviews, when I found the file, sat down and wrote the book. And I realized I couldn't do it before because I was not ready because the information in those interviews was too potent. It was too strong. I could not metabolize it and digest it and turn it into a book that someone else could read and enjoy. And that was a very strong learning point for me, that sometimes the, the outbreath is four years long in between starting something and picking up on it and finishing it. And the writing of that book literally changed me because I had to go in and out of all these experiences these people had described to me and then turn it into something that people could read and understand And a bit like you were saying, I did several different versions before I came out with something that was satisfied with and that people could pick up and that people who knew nothing about non-exec chairmanship could read and get this message of understanding what it's like. These people are human and these people are really special people as well. And I now understand what that's about. So that was in relation to what you're talking about. That was quite an important learning. So that sounds fascinating about executive chairman or non-executive chairman. If you can, please, you say they're special people. Can you summarize what the the characteristics you found in these seven people? Is that possible for you to do? Um, I'll have a go. 
I'll have a go. Uh, because the, the, the key message that came out was the message of autonomy in relationship. And what I meant by that is that all of these people, by nature of the role, they have to be highly autonomous. And that means really thinking for themselves. So all of these people were able to really think for themselves in a, in a free thinking, independent way. But they also all knew how to be in relationship with other people in a real way, uh, in a way where people felt, felt that authentically, that they as people were present and engaged in relationships. So it, I would say those, 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 having those two characteristics together in the one person is quite unusual because it's a bit like being an introvert and an extrovert at the same time. So I've got a question for you here. So I deal with many, many people like that. Have the position myself being the CEO of charities and things like that. The answers I get, and I wonder if you found the same in the seven people that you interviewed, relationships with others, wonderful, but the non-exec chairman themselves often are lonely. Yes, they are. So in your book, do you approach that? Yes. I talk about, there's a whole section about what their needs are in order to support them in the role. And I, I examine that in a, in a bit of detail. Is there, because that is important because that is, that's very, very important because people look at these people and they think, oh, they're resilient, they're capable, they're self-sufficient. Now they are, and they're still human. And in order to have this, you need quite a lot of elasticity in order to be able to straddle being autonomous and being in relationship at the same time. And for elasticity, you need to be well-resourced. You need to be in a good state. And to be in a good state, when you're in, as you say, that isolated position, you need support, but you need a very particular kind of support. You need loving support at home, obviously. You need uh, friendship, just natural friendship, the way you don't talk about anything to do with what you're doing. But you also need peership with other people who are in a similar place as you are, uh, who, because then you can talk shop about it in a way you can't really do with anybody else. And you also, all of these people, something they all have in common is they also have support from expert help who are not in the same role. You know, people like myself who are completely outside of it and outside their circle, uh, independent of it, who can also bring another another angle for them, which helps them keep a perspective. So it's, there's quite a strong cocktail of support that, that these people tend to have. And the ones who don't have it can get a bit kind of um, burnt out. Or insular. Yeah. 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 I, I've, I've found that with uh, a few of my colleagues. Okay. So that brings us on then to support from others which brings us on to mentorship. Yeah. So anybody who wants to be successful, is it essential that they have a mentor? Here's a big subject for us now then. I'd say it's highly advisable. Highly advisable. But it's got to be the right mentor. Yeah, that was my next thing then. How, how, does, how do you choose a mentor? Okay, so my second book, which is on Amazon... Um, is called What is Humanistic Coaching and Why Do We Care? And there's a, a whole chapter in there about choosing your coach 
or your mentor. And um, there's, I suppose, two, three aspects to it. One is clarifying why you want a mentor and, and being as clear as you can about what you think you might be looking for. Another is doing a lot of legwork, meeting people, talking to people, and remembering you don't have to hire anybody until you're ready. And you can ask them to talk to you as often as you want until you're ready. They may get fed up, but you can, you can do that. And the third thing is to trust your gut. When you reach the point where you think this is the right person, trust your gut. And also remember, they may not be the right person for the rest of your life. They may be the right person for a limited period of time or for an extended period of time, or you may want more than one mentor for different reasons. Absolutely. Now, here's an interesting one. As a fellow author, did you experience this? When you completed your book, did you feel that you were a different person at the end of the book to when you started writing it? Yes, I did. I think that, you know, I've spoken to so many authors and, and some realise it, some don't. And then they realise, oh, yes, absolutely. So I would say whether you intend publishing a book or not, it's, there's something about writing a book that changes us. This truth and transcendence that mm. you speak about. Yeah. So uh, when you're talking about non-exec um, chairman of charities and things like that being resilient or we think they're resilient the perception is that they're resilient and some others might not think that they themselves are resilient so why do you think people struggle to find their own resilience when they need to follow their dreams goals and aspirations I think, and this interestingly, I did a whole podcast episode on someone else's podcast about resilience. And um, he was asking me about how, how do I change these vulnerable experiences that I have in order to feel resilient was the question. And I said, you don't. You know, the vulnerable feelings are the source of the resilience. And that's something which a lot of people don't realize. And that's one of the main reasons that people don't find resilience, because they're trying to deny a whole aspect of their experience. They're trying to reach a point where nothing hurts anymore and where they feel strong all the time. And, and that's like trying to stand on one leg. You're going to fall over. So for you, then, resilience is to embrace it, meet it with whatever you need to meet it with, and carry on. And carry on. And invest in building your actual strength. Cool. You know, invest in your, your health, your physical strength, the quality of your relationships, your grooming, the way you dress, where you live, uh, your nutrition. You know, invest in all of those things, of course. Yeah. Okay. So how do you get inspired? Wow. Well... <laughs> I tend to live in a state of semi-inspiration a lot of the time. I'm sort of, I'm a bit older now, and I'm profoundly grateful that I'm still alive, actually, Jeff. Um, <laughs> to me, that's inspiring on its own. Indeed. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty inspired just in, in, in general. I get very inspired when I witness people transforming. 
when I witness people finding their truth and finding their yes and transforming, and that really, really turns me on. I just love it. It's fantastic. I get very inspired when I see people being extraordinarily kind to one another. That completely has me in tears and very inspired. Um, I get inspired by beauty and extraordinary creativity. Uh, really, my, my brother, I may have mentioned to you when we met that my brother does stuff with cars and um, he does sort of engineering stuff, builds his own things, invents them as he goes, etc. I am not a car person, right? But I get utterly inspired when I look at it because I look at it and go, oh my God, the, the human spirit and creativity that's gone into that is just mind-blowing. Cool. So if you wanted to write another book now, What's the process you go through? How do you get started? So the first thing I would do is decide why I want to write the book. And I do actually have another book uh, brewing in the background. Um, and I've had a couple of thoughts about the thrust of the book, but I haven't yet landed on the thrust of the book. So the first thing is find, getting, finding what, what's, the, what's the purpose of the book, I suppose, is my first question. And once I've thought, what's the purpose of the book? Then I look at what's my process for the book. So for example, I have a very good friend who's an editor and he keeps saying, Catherine, you should transcribe some of your podcast episodes and make a book with one chapter for each episode. And I've said, and this guy's a really accomplished author and editor. So I know this would be a good book, right? And I said to him, yeah, I could do that, but I'm not sure that's what I want to do. I'm not sure that's the next book, right? So I'm waiting for what's the next book. And then the process comes from that. It comes out of that. Okay. I mean, I'll just say one, another book I wrote called um, Why Thinking for Ourselves is, is a Strategic Necessity and What to Do About It. And I wrote this in the wake of the whole the lockdowns thingy. And the process for that was listening to thousands of people saying what they thought and what they felt and what they'd experienced. And then metabolizing that inside myself, which nearly killed me. And then writing a book, which was utter ranty nonsense, throwing it away and starting again, completely different purpose, but a process. So the process varies according to the purpose of the book for me. Okay. Now, I've been looking forward to asking you this question throughout this interview, because I don't know where it's going to go. It's, it's, a question, oh, it's, it's a question I ask every guest, but for you, your life has been so varied and transformed so many ways. So are you ready? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine Llewellyn, what is the most important thing you've ever learned in your life? Wow. Everything's perfect already. Okay. Do you want to expand on it or shall we leave it there? <laughs> the letting go of the striving to make things be different. The letting go of the striving to be different. The letting go of dissatisfaction as being of any importance. And the landing in the present moment as a perfect, unique thing that is. It's a very kind of zen Mm -hmm. place 
And I would say that's probably the, my most important lesson. Wonderful. Break the chains of irrelevances, distractions and imposed expectations. Absolutely. I got that from your website, by the way. I recognised it. <laughs> Very smoothly done, Jeff. <laughs> I, I, was, I was waiting. To, where's that going to feed in? And there it was, right at the end. Bang. Okay. Very skillfully done. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Well, that is it for today. Thank you so much, Kathleen Willen. You have been truly amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. It's been such a delight. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening to The Secrets of Success. I hope the show has helped to ignite your passion, to be a catalyst for action and giving you the fuel you need to realise your dream. If you've enjoyed the show, please hit the like button, leave a review and share. You know, it really does make a huge difference because without your help, we can't succeed. So please go ahead and share the show, even with one person that makes all the difference in the world. On another note, I'm always searching for great success stories. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you'd like to nominate a guest, please contact me at our website, jeff-smith.com. I really would love to hear from you. Thank you again, Kathleen Wellin. You have been amazing. And for sure, I'm going to get you back as a guest on the show when you eventually decide to publish all these books that you've written. <laughs> <laughs> so much more to get from you. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Thank you.